Would you just join me in prayer? Father, we do belong to you. All that we have is yours. All that we are is yours. All that we've been given belongs to you. And so, Father, now as we gather as your children, may we find encouragement in your word. May it direct our hearts and guide our minds into Christ and just cause us to love you and love others more. May that be a genuine result. And may we walk by faith as we leave this place, trusting in the glory and the power and the majesty of Jesus. I pray this in Christ's most holy name. Amen. Well, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we're going to be spending our, our next few Sundays in the Gospel of Matthew, just preparing our hearts as we consider this Advent season. And, and you know, the, the celebration of Christmas in the church has really been a very controversial issue for many years, almost since its inception. You know, nowhere in the scriptures are you told to celebrate Christmas. It's not one of the, uh, the holidays, so to speak, in the Bible. And so, you know, it, it's a very unique time of the year. Now, the, the origins of this tradition are kind of unique in the way that it developed. You know, in the first 300 years of the church, really, and, and this is not just in terms of Christianity, but just in general, uh, people didn't focus on the births of people a whole lot. In, in, in fact, you didn't really celebrate birthdays. The focal point in someone's life would have been either A, when they you know, became an adult and, and took on their, their family line or took on their, their family responsibilities. You know, the moment a man, a boy becomes a man and he takes on that role as starting his family, that would have been a celebration time. And another celebration time would have been actually, uh, or at least a point of memory, would have been somebody's death. And in the church, they would have celebrated that as, as the homecoming of someone. So the thought of actually celebrating someone's birthday is uh, unique. It's, it's really not grounded in, in really the history of the Bible and the time when the Bible was written. But, you know, you, you go on, and, and but within the first 300 years of the church, there was a real downplay on really focusing on the birth of Jesus. But, but one of the things that happened was as the church was expanding out into, into pagan regions, into pagan cultures... They had to deal with pagan ceremonies. Pagan ceremonies are part of life. And, 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 and the uniqueness of, of the ceremonies is this, that most of the time in most of the culture, if you look in the Mediterranean area and in Europe, and, and we're going from maybe you know, year 200 to year 1000, the, the, the festivals were the way that you taught people. It was the way you taught your children. So festivals were part of life. Big festivals. And that's why there were many of them, many pagan festivals. You know, in, in our culture, when we think of teaching a child, we think of putting them in a classroom and giving them a textbook and giving them tests and giving them lectures and, and things like that. In, in, in the pagan cultures, especially throughout the world, the way you taught was through your family celebrations, through the rhythms of the year, through ceremonies and festivals. And, and these kind of uh, traditions became the way that children learned and the way you passed on what you believed to the next generation. So now the church is expanding out into pagan cultures and the pagan regions, and the pagan regions have all their pagan festivals, and one of the things that, for, for, for good or for ill, whether it's good or bad, one of the things the early evangelists, the early leaders of the church did is they said, you know what, 
We're not going to try to do away with all these, these festivals because that's almost like trying to do away, in our culture, it'd be like trying to do away with a, a five-day work week. You know, just part of the life. And so what we're going to do, the, the, the thought was, we're going to redeem these traditions. We're going to save them. So we're going to take the pagan traditions, the pagan rituals, because they were part of the rhythm of the year, the rhythm of the months, the rhythms of the weeks. And what we're going to do is we're going to redeem them and put on them Christian significance. Well, one festival that was celebrated throughout the world in different ways was the the winter solstice. In many different countries, this winter solstice had a lot of different uh, thoughts and and celebrations around them. You know, uh, the Germans, they had a Yule festival. The Celtics had... um, a whole festival around this individual by the name of Balder. The Scandinavians had this teaching that there was the sun god, and the sun god was struck by an arrow, a mistletoe arrow, and it made the sun go away. You know, in the Scandinavian region, it gets really dark that time of the year. And so they had these kind of, all these rituals all around the winter solstice. And so Christian bishops throughout the, uh, the world just started saying, we're going to redeem this thing, and what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate this not as the time the sun god was slayed by some Scandinavian god with an arrow made of mistletoe or something like that. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, why the birth of Jesus? Well, the, the death of Jesus was, was, was highly celebrated from the very beginning of the church, right? Every Lord's Day they met and celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Lord's table was, was centered around that. And so that day was already covered you know, death and resurrection is already covered. That's happening every Sunday. So now, what the focus became, well, let's start thinking through other things that happened in the life of Jesus. And so there's a whole journey, and we're not going to get into all this, of how December 25th got picked. But basically, some early monks thought that Mary conceived Jesus on March 25th. So you go nine months later, and where you at? December 25th. And and so the thought was, okay, let's redeem this, this winter solstice and let's say, no, we're going to celebrate not some god killing some other god or some other you know, Scandinavian festival or, or German festival. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And then what they did is in each particular culture, they would take some of the traditions from that culture and add it into the celebration. So Christmas trees you know, came from the German celebrations. Mistletoe came from the Scandinavian. And on and on it went. And these little pieces got put in there. And the church's desire at that point was to say, okay, how do we, um, how do we you know, redeem this time? Now, as a result, it became very controversial. Do we celebrate Christmas or not? Of course, the, the Puritans, they would have thrown you in jail if you celebrated Christmas. So, so what do we do with it? How do we celebrate it? Well, I'll give you kind of my thought on it kind of what I think about celebrating the day Jesus was born. We don't know when he was born. We just, we have no clue, right? I mean, some people sit down, and they try to figure that stuff out mathematically and all that. I really think, you know, this is, don't take, write this down as a no is my opinion. I think it's kind of a waste of time because the Bible doesn't really focus on that as much. But I do think that there is a focus we are to have. And the focus deals with the coming of Jesus. And that's why when we celebrate the season, we call it the Advent season here. I like to call it the Advent season 
Because Advent, as John reminded us, means coming. And we are told to remember the coming of Jesus. We are to come to the Lord's table and we remember His first coming. And we're told that His second coming is the blessed hope of the church. The Old Testament anticipates His first coming. His coming when He's going to come and bring salvation and and the very kingdom of God, the earth. And the New Testament anticipates its second coming when He comes back to judge the living and the dead. And so we are told to remember His coming. And so what I like to do is I like to say, okay, as far as our church goes, we're going to remember the coming of Jesus. We're going to take this time of the year and remember His first coming and anticipate His second coming. We're going to focus on His advent. And then, whatever family traditions you have, whether you have some or you don't, whether you don't have any or not, that is entirely up to you and your conscience how far you want to go. I have my family traditions. You probably have some of your own. But those are just what it is. They're family traditions. As far as our church goes, we're going to focus on the coming of Jesus. And that is a good thing to do this time of year. That is a good thing to do. And the way we're going to start this process of celebrating the coming of Jesus is here in Matthew chapter 1. It's been a few years since we've done this during the Advent season, but but we're going to focus on Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to focus on it for a reason. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is kind of what I would say the first Advent verse of the New Testament. Matthew was put in this spot in the canon, in the Scriptures, for a reason. The Old Testament anticipated the coming of Jesus. It anticipated one would come to crush the head of the serpent. It was anticipated that one would come that would bring blessings to the nation. One would come that would rule. One would come that would, would, would be able to bring God's law to our very hearts. And, and all these promises, and you get to Malachi, and they're unfulfilled. You're just left hanging in Malachi. Who is the one who will come and bring all these promises to fruition? And when they were compiling the New Testament, they said, we have to put Matthew first. We have to put it first because it is the announcement that Jesus the Messiah has arrived. The son of David, the son of Abraham. It's the great Advent verse. And so what I thought it would be good for us to do is begin, and we'll spend this week and next week looking at these this genealogy of Jesus. Now you hear that, and, and many of you go, oh my, genealogies. Oh. <laughs> you know, very few people have Matthew chapter 1, verse 3 as their life verse. I'll give you a second to look at it. Right? right? You, there's nothing in there that you would say, what is the devotional quality? How does this bless me? How does this make me think of Jesus you know, being laid in a, in a manger and that kind of a thing? Well, the reality is this, that this is the description of the advent of Jesus. He has come. And He has come, and He's come to accomplish what God said He would. And so we're going to unpack it. There is a lot of hope, and there's a lot of joy, and there's a lot of blessing as we go through this. Now today what we're going to do is we're just going to look at verse 1. Just going to look at verse 1. Then next week, Lord willing, we'll go through and unpack the rest of these names, and we'll find some things in there that you will find, I believe, encouraging. But also, what they will do is they'll set the table 
It will set the table for understanding the advent of Jesus. When Jesus came, he came with a very specific mission in mind. And these first few verses of Matthew unlock that mission for us and give us what we need to know and understand. But today, like I said, we're just going to look at verse 1. Here's what we're going to do. See in your bulletin, there's really two points. The first point is just going to be a general description of what you find in genealogy. I'm going to teach you how to understand genealogy. So it's just a little bit of an overview. And there's two things that you learn when you understand a genealogy. Genealogies give chronicles of hope and testimonies of grace. And so you'll see that today. And that's just an overview. Then what we're going to do is we're going to dive in to chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to see the actual focal point, the person of this genealogy. And we're going to discover that Jesus Christ is the eternal King the one who brings blessing to the nation. And we're going to see the hope that is in here. And what I want you to get, two things, hopefully, Lord willing, you'll get from this, is I'm, I really believe you, you capture Matthew 1.1, it will set the table for understanding the advent of Jesus. And it will do two things for you. First, I believe it, it should change the way you understand yourself. It should do that. You probably think, I don't know how that verse could do that, but it really should do that. Second thing is that it should understand, help you change the way you view the world. This should radically transform the way you view the world. So let's jump into this. Let's just first begin with our overview. just want to teach you how to read genealogy so you understand this. Genealogies in scriptures do two things. That's the point on your outline. They provide chronicles of hope and testimonies of grace. Now let me kind of explain to you what that means. We talk about a chronicle of hope. We have to realize this. That that when is when let me say it this way, in the Old Testament, you were just reading it through in chronological order. You will notice something. Every time a problem emerges, God responds by promising to send someone. So Adam and Eve sin. What's the first thing he says? I'm going to send someone to conquer Satan. I'm going to send someone to conquer Satan. Then history goes on and on and on. And then what happens? God is going to continue to build on this. The Tower of Babel happens and all the, the nations are scattered around the world and they're all speaking different languages and, and humanity is all divided up. And then the very next thing, what happens? God says to Abram, listen, I'm calling you out of your land. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to come into this new land because you see, I'm going to form a whole new nation through you and through your seed, through an offspring of yours, all those nations that were just scattered around the world, they'll be blessed. I'm sending someone to bless. Then Israel forms. Moses is gathering the people together. Moses reminds the people, listen, one day someone's going to come. This great person who will keep the law. He'll be your lawgiver. Trust God for your king. He'll provide a king. Of course, the people go along, and what do they want? They want their own king. Eventually, they go into the land. They want their own king. Things are bad. Their own king is falling apart. And God finally places his king on the throne. And then his king comes along and says, hey, you know, uh, I'd like to build you a temple. And God says, no, no, you see... Through you, I'm going to bring one who's going to rule forever. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, there's these promises, promises, promises. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm kind of focusing on this is that God's answer 
to the problems of the world was to send someone. And the conflict of the Old Testament is Satan trying to kill off that godly line. Satan trying to go after that line. Satan trying to stop that process. But yet God, all the way through the Old Testament, would give these little genealogies, would give these lines, would give these people saying, listen, I haven't forgotten. That one's coming. That one's coming. The line's still alive. The line's still alive. Don't give up. It looks like Satan's winning. It looks like I've lost. It looks like everything has fallen apart. Don't give up. Let me throw out a few more names for you to help you remember I've kept the line alive. So I call it the Chronicles of Hope. God is going to make good. God is going to make good on his promise. That is the significance then of Genesis 1.1. Why there's so much hope there when he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Remember, Christ is in his last name, the title. And so what he's saying is, here is the genealogy of the Messiah. That is a chronicle of hope. No matter what happened in the world, no matter all of the tragedies, no matter all of the heartache, no matter all the ways that God's people even couldn't follow God, even all the failure within the genealogy itself, God kept it alive. It's a chronicle of hope. So when you read those names, don't just go, man, these are names I can't even pronounce. Why would I read this? Remember in your brain, this is a chronicle of hope. This is God reminding everybody, it's still here. It's still here. I haven't given up. That one's coming. That one's coming. Okay. Second thing that the genealogies give you is that they're testimonies of grace. If you were to go through and study these names, whether it's the one here in Matthew or in any of the genealogies in the Bible, you would discover that they all have something in common with you and with me. They are sinners. They're not worthy to be in the line of the Messiah. They don't deserve to be there. They are people in need of grace. They are people in need of God's loving, compassionate mercy. And every name that's there reminds us that God is gracious. Reminds us that God is merciful. Reminds us that God uses people by His grace, not because they are worth it within themselves. Sometimes it's easy for us to think this person was used because they are incredible. In fact, I used to struggle. I would used to get abridged versions of biographies because I liked reading biographies. And, and sometimes, you know, some people who write biographies of someone's life, you know, you get like four volumes on someone's life. You're like, man, I don't know if I want to devote that much time to learning about this person. And so I would get the abridged versions of their biographies. But whenever you got the abridged version of biographies, what would happen is they would just string the highlights of the person's life together. And then you read through all those highlights and you think, man, this guy never, ever blew it. I remember reading a little bridge version of Hudson Taylor and I'm thinking, I don't know if the guy ever sinned. All he did was pray and trust God and great things happened. I, he never probably sat in his room, that's how when I read the Bible, thinking, he probably never sat in his room going, I wonder if God exists. You'd never get the feeling that he questioned that. you never get the feeling that he laid in his bed when he was 10 years old trying to figure out eternity. You ever try doing that? You know what I'm talking about? Like, 
And then you freak out. You're like, I don't even want to think about heaven. Ah!" Right? How many of you have done that? Okay, please admit it. Okay, okay, good. I can't be the only one doing that. Okay, right? Right? He never had, you would get the feeling, never had that moment. Never had that feeling. Yet they did. I am sure that Hudson Taylor had his sins. I'm certain that all these people with their biographies, and I know one thing, everyone in the line of the Messiah did not deserve to be there based on their own merits. But you see, when I read through the genealogies, I am reading about the grace of God. No matter your past, no matter what's happened in your life, no matter who you are, what matters is God's grace, God's works, God's calling of you. You could be a complete failure and loser in every facet of life and God is not in heaven thinking man you are a loser you would be really cool if you could get your act together I could really use you he's saying it's about my grace my calling and when you read through these things you read the testimonies grace now next week Lord willing that's what we're going to focus on we're going to unpack the testimonies of grace we'll highlight some of these people in this genealogy and see the grace of God And remind ourselves that the advent of Jesus is about the coming of His grace, His mercy to this world. God leads and and leads through mercy and grace and compassion, and we'll look at that. So, genealogies, chronicles of hope, God cannot be thwarted. Satan cannot stop. Testimonies of grace, God, that work cannot be stopped. Now, let's... Now look at this genealogy itself. Let's look at Matthew 1.1. Let's look at our eternal king and, and our blessing to the nations. It says here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a powerful statement. It's a very powerful statement because what it's doing is he's telling us, this is the one. I remember hearing the testimony of a, of a Jewish man who was um, really trying to, to look and understand what truth was. He was not a believer. And he studied all the religions of the world. First thing he did is he studied the Eastern religions, and he said, you know what? The Eastern religions, he, he ruled them all out, and he said, they're, they're transcendent. They're They're all about transcendence, kind of entering this kind of nirvana state, but they're not imminent. They're not dealing with the world itself. It doesn't have any concrete reality in this world. And if something is true, it has to be transcendent and also work in this world. So then he looked at Islam, and he said, well, Islam can't be true because Islam is based on the Bible. If the Bible fell apart, the Quran would fall apart. But if the Quran would fall apart, the Bible wouldn't fall apart. Therefore, he ruled out Islam. Because Islam needs the truthfulness of the Bible in order for it to work. So then he studied, he was Jewish, he studied Judaism. He said he got to the end of Malachi and he said, oh my, there's no hope. And then he said, I read Matthew 1.1 and I dropped to my knees in tears. The genealogy of the Messiah. Here he is. He's arrived in Jesus Christ. This verse became the verse that opened his eyes to the gospel. Now, what is this verse saying? Two things. Notice what he says about them. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Two descriptors. One is the son of David. The second is the son of Abraham. 
These are two titles, son of David, son of Abraham. Two very important titles we learn about Jesus. Son of David, what does this mean? Son of David was a title used to describe Jesus as the king. It comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now David was king, uh, led the nation, eventually conquers Jerusalem, eventually there's order and there's peace in the land and things seem to be under control. And David has this incredible palace and he's, he's looking at his palace and then he realizes the Ark of the Covenant sitting in this chintzy little tent that they've been carrying around for years. And he's saying, God, you can't have your temple. I can't live in a better house than you. I've got to build you a temple, right? David, a worshiper, you can imagine him. He wants to worship God in this kind of transcendent way. And God says, nope, you can't build me a temple. We discover one of the reasons why is that he, David had killed too many people. He just, you know, had too much blood on his hands. God says, it's not for you. But David, God says to him, and this is where, what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. Here's what he says to David's desire. David wants to build him a temple. And God says, no, I'm not, you're not going to build me a temple. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do something for you. When your days are fulfilled, so I'm in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David, you're not going to build me a kingdom or a, a, a castle, you know, a temple. Instead, through your line, I'm going to bring a king who will have a, 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 a throne and a kingdom that will rule forever. An eternal king's coming through you. So listen, I'm not, it's not your building that matters to me. It's what I'm building that matters. And what I'm building is this eternal king. So now, Jews throughout history from this moment started saying, okay, this king needs to come. We need this king. This king who will rule on a throne forever. A king who will rule with justice. A king who will, who will free the oppressed and bring justice to the world. A, a king who will, who will be merciful and will know how to be merciful to people who are weak, but at the same time be strong with those who try to abuse. A king that will rule perfectly. An eternal king. That's what the world needs. Now, here's what he's saying. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. We could say it this way, the eternal King of God. Now just stop for a moment and think about that. We celebrate the advent of Jesus. I don't know if we're actually celebrating, oftentimes when we think of this season, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the King? What does it mean? I mean, just stop and practically say, how should that impact my life? Let me give you four ways it could impact your life. Right? If Jesus is the king, then what he thinks about this world and living in this world matters more than anything else. We go through and we study, especially the Gospels, we're studying Luke together as a church, 
What are we learning in Luke? We're learning about Jesus and how Jesus thinks about this world, how Jesus interprets reality, how Jesus wants us to think about our lives. It's not about me getting Jesus to bless my plans. It's about me aligning myself to his plans. It's about me saying, Jesus, what matters to you has to matter to me. You're not a magic potion. You're not a magic spell that blesses what I want out of life. You're the one that defines life for me. You're the one that changes how I live. The way you think about the world is what matters most. Second thing. If he's the king, then he'll bring justice to the oppressed. Now think about this for a moment, because oftentimes, the very thing our flesh wants to do when we're being taken advantage of is we want justice. We feel like we've got to fight for our way, fight for our rights, fight, 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 fight. Right? And we get all mad when we see injustices in the world, and we should, because injustice is horrible, it's sinful, it's wretched. But one of the things we have to do is surrender to Jesus. He's the king, Jesus you bring your justice. The reason why I am freed up to live, love, and forgive is because Jesus is the judge. I will let him judge the situations so that I can just forgive and love. You be the God of justice. His justice is infinitely better than mine. This is what it means to be son of David. He's the one who brings justice. Third, If he's the king, then he must be served. Kind of ties into the first one a little bit, but it's the practical application of it. He's defining reality for me. He's the one that's giving me the direction in life. Therefore, what do I want to do? I want to serve him. You're the king. I want to serve you. I want to do what you want. I want to get on my knees and say, you lead me. I will follow. Fourthly, if he's the king, and since he's the king, I don't have to worry about anything that happens with the lesser kings of the earth. I was driving down the road the other day, flipping between two talk radio stations, one conservative, one liberal. Just kind of going back and forth. Andrew's in the back of the car. He's like, are you switching stations? I said, yeah. He goes, I can't tell the difference. They're both just getting all angry about stuff. Right? Just getting bent out of shape. You know, he, he wasn't listening to the talk, and he just heard people getting angry. And I realized, yeah, you know what? These guys are getting bent out of shape, and they, and they think everything lives and dies by this political moment. But this is the genealogy of the Messiah, the king of the world. The lesser kings better pay homage to him, lest he gets angry with them. We have nothing to worry about. We really can be at peace. We really can be at peace. He is in control. You see, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, when you read that, you should feel an anchor. You should feel that anchor. The king has come. The king has come. At that moment, you should just, like all the burdens of the world, should just fall off your shoulders. That's what it should be like. But what's the second title? Second title, son of Abraham. What does that mean? Powerful title. We, go, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 for this title. In fact, just look at Genesis 12 with me here. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. God is calling Abram. Right? He just scattered the nations. 
You've got to keep that context in mind. The Tower of Babel just happened, and, 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 and all the nations were scattered. And now we've got this division, and we've got conflict, and we've got all this stuff going on in the world. And, 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 and there's, in one sense, there's no unity. And everything's kind of in a bad place. And then God does this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's saying, okay, Abram, I'm going to call you out. Now, Abram was coming out of Ur. Ur is modern, would, would have been Babylon. That would have been another name for it. So if you think about it, you know, Abram was a Babylonian. He comes out. He's a Gentile. Babylonian Gentile, for that matter. God says, listen, I'm going to pull out of Ur, which ends up being like the really bad place in the world, or in the Bible history, and out of this horrible place, I'm pulling this guy out, and I'm going to create a whole new nation through you. And you know what the point of this nation was? The point of this nation was not the law of God. The point of this nation wasn't that the nation would be just constructed around this very kind of oppressive set of laws. What was the point of the nation? I'm going to make you great, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. Why? So that you would be a what? A blessing. You would be a blessing. In fact, when people bless you, they're going to be blessed. And not only that, through you, I'm going to send blessing to all of these nations I just scattered. We discover in Genesis 15, it's going to come through a seed, through his line. All the nations of the world will be blessed. And this blessing was not a governmental system. It wasn't a moral code of ethic. It was a person. It was the Messiah. Now, what's the point here? When we read Son of Abraham, we get to read into this and we get to understand that this Messiah was actually bringing blessings so that me, a Gentile, living thousands of years later in a completely different country, can receive the gift of life and salvation. So that you guys, no matter your past, no matter what's happened in your life, you not only can be saved, you can be lifted up, and you can be used in the kingdom of God. No matter what's happened. You see, he's saying, listen, I'm bringing blessing to the whole world. You are no longer defined by your past. You are no longer defined by what happened to you. You're no longer defined by the, the horrible things. You are now part of the very kingdom of God. Why? Because God said, listen, I'm going to bless the nations. God has this eyes out mentality that says, I'm just going to bless. And this is my goal. This is my intention. And so when he says he's the son of Abraham, he's the promised one to bring blessing to the world. Do you see why the book of Matthew begins with this statement? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, right? The king of the world, the son of Abraham, the blessing to the nations. And how does Matthew end? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, son of David. Go, make disciples of me to all nations, son of Abraham. 
blessing to the world. We can redeem people. We can pull people out of this yuck and they can be saved. It's a powerful statement. So what does this mean? I said at the beginning that this should bless you, should change your view of yourself, and should change your view of the world. How should this change the view of yourself? This time of the year, my email inbox gets filled with statistics, Christmas statistics, all kinds of Christmas statistics, most of them depressing. For some reason, we love to do like really depressing polls. How many are depressed? How many are dissatisfied? How many feel like your life's a waste? How many feel like last year was a waste of a year, right? And there's all of this, these statistics. But I was thinking about that as I saw one this week. How many people get depressed during the holidays? How many people find no purpose and joy? I mean, this was one of the polls. You know, they gave a, how many people were depressed during the holidays? How many people found no joy? How many people no purpose, no meaning in life? How many people walk around the world feeling guilty? How many people seek spiritual meaning and they can't find it? And all the numbers were high. I'm not giving you the statistics because it doesn't matter. They're just all high. What's the point? The point is this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the King of the universe, the blessing to the nation. Jesus has come. If you feel like life's out of control, He's the Son of David. He's in control. If you feel like you're just far away from God, He's the Son of Abraham. He did all of this to bless the nations and to pull them into a relationship with Him. If you feel as if you have nowhere to turn, He's the Son of David. He's the anchor. He's the rock in the world. If you feel as if God could never use you, He's the Son of Abraham. He's done all this to bless you, to pull you into His kingdom, to display His grace and mercy. There is not one negative feeling that you can have that is not resolved by Matthew 1.1. There's not one issue that you can face in your life that is not resolved by those two sayings. The Messiah is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is in complete control and he has showered his mercy and his grace upon you through this Messiah. The advent of Jesus is introduced in the most powerful way in the most simplistic way by telling us he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. So therefore, whatever you're going through, you can run it through this verse. And you can say, wait a minute, I feel like things are going crazy, he's the son of David. I'm feeling like I got no purpose in the world, he's the son of Abraham. Whatever it is, you can bring it through and unpack what that means and find hope and meaning there. That's how it should change the view of yourself. What about the world? Should, I also said it should change the view of the world. Well, I think hopefully this passage makes it clear. I am tired of putting my trust in politics. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of all that emotional drain that goes through that. I am frustrated that justice doesn't happen perfectly in this world. I'm frustrated that good people get abused by bad people and bad people don't seem to pay. It's frustrating. It's frustrating to see that there are more people without food in this world than with food. It frustrates me. But Jesus, the King, and I can turn to Him in this world. 
And I can believe that He will use me, use us, but He will carry out His purposes. He is in control. I am not. And that's a good place. You don't want me to be king of the universe. That's a great thing. But He is. And therefore, when I engage this world, I want to engage this world through the Son of David. The one who's in control. I can rest and find my hope. So, first Sunday of Advent. What is the hope that we're clinging to? Our first candle we lit was the candle of hope. Hope is this. Jesus the Messiah has come. The ruler of the universe. The dispenser of blessing to the nation. Let's let that anchor our lives. Would you bow your head with me? Prayer. Father, this is such an important passage. It's so powerful. We struggle with it. We struggle with it because we don't always see these things. Sometimes we're caught up. Sometimes we trying to rule and lead. Sometimes we let our own opinions and our own emotions guide us. But I thank you for the clarity that your Spirit inspired Matthew to write this one simple point. The Messiah has come. Son of David, ruler of the world, son of Abraham, lesser of the nation. So may we stand here recognizing all authority has been given to you. And on this basis as we go, May we dispense that blessing to the world. May may it not only anchor our lives, but may you use us to bring that message to anchor the lives of others. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.